This may sound like a contradiction, but we're in the golden age of media. For the first time, you're able to get your content out to people who want it on their preferred platforms and whenever they want it. You can target and reach communities that didn't otherwise have a voice. Splice is bringing together some of Asia's most exciting startups at an event in Chiang Mai called Splice Beta. It's a celebration of the work in this space. Check out splicebeta.com and you will get a 10% off the festival ticket with the promo code Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E-A-S-I-A. So now, back to the show. Hi, I'm Bernard Leung, and you may know me as the executive who hangs out with crazy rich Asians. And in my spare time, I wonder how they would operate as venture capitalists. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology, and media in Asia. And today I have Rachel Lau, managing partner of RHL Ventures. Welcome, Rachel, and it's great to have you here for the first time. Hello, Bernard. So you're based in Malaysia, right? Correct. It's very interesting because you come from a very interesting background together with your co-founders on RHL Ventures and set up this venture capital firm. But before we get into that, I want to start to get to know you better. How do you start your career? So I went to school in Australia and I had an offer from NN Investments, then ING, to join their investment management arm. It was a three-year program in New York, Hong Kong and London point of time and this was in 2008 when I you know received the offer the offer said you know I had to go to Hong Kong to be an analyst with the investment management team doing Asian equities so I started out my career being an Asian equities analyst then instead of going to London I went to the US and did emerging market debt and that was me doing the trading side of it and after that we went to multi-assets and derivatives and trading derivatives multi-assets often the books in New York you know I decided to move back to Asia after a little while because I did miss Asia. So moved back to Asia, did Asian, went back to doing uh, Asian equities or Asia Pacific equities at that point, including Japan and Australia. Been in Hong Kong for about seven years, decided to move back to Malaysia a year and a half or now, closer to two years now, to Malaysia and to start up the venture capital fund that you know, you've mentioned about, which is our child ventures with some of my you know, childhood friends. And that's basically it. Yeah. So what prompted you to actually set up the venture capital firm then? I think it was for us, it was an opportunity in the current market situations. We saw Southeast Asia as a potential growth engine uh, around the world. If you look at the regions such as Africa or China or you know, Europe, the Americas, and Asia, we couldn't find a pocket of growth that had a risk-adjusted growth similar to Southeast Asia. And when I say risk-adjusted, I mean, you know, the amount of risk that you're taking in terms of the capital deployed versus the amount of risk that you're taking in somewhere like Africa. So if you're looking at Africa, for example, the infrastructure is not built up to suit. You know, in places like Malaysia, we've got first-class infrastructure, you know, you've got great airports, so, you know, in terms of, you know, flying in and out of the countries, it would be easy. Uh, you've got, you know, a 70% of the population in Southeast Asia is under 40 years old. We've got, you know, so our GDP per capita is actually higher than somewhere like China, which again is a growing middle class. We've got great businesses that are multi-billion dollars and, you know, homegrown. Recent, not just, you know, the third, fourth generation businesses that has, you know, emerged strongly in the niche sectors uh, in Southeast Asia. So for us, we were looking at you know doing a Southeast Asia play or starting up a, a financial firm with a Southeast Asia play. Venture capital is the first step of us coming into this part or investing in this part of the world. So 
when we looked at it, you know, we're looking at you know, a long-term 30-year play as opposed to venture capital and, you know, just investing some seed money. But we were also cognizant that, you know, if we're played in, in the public markets, which is, you know, public market, public equities or debt, you know, we would have no significant strength. So we said we'll be in the private sector. And again, it was by elimination that we had to play in the venture capital space because the ticket size was a bit more palatable to the families at this point of time. It is also where we see most of the upside, given that most of the employers are much younger. And so for us, it was a cognizant move to move into you know a sector that was growing, had a lot of opportunities and had great talent coming back to serve that particular segment. So you have a pretty interesting background. You studied in Australia, you work in Hong Kong and Malaysia. In your career journey, what are the interesting career lessons learned that you can share with my audience? I think the interesting bit about you know, my career is I took the opportunity when I could. And again, a lot of it was foolish opportunities. Um, I had no clue what I was getting into. I, I did a law degree, actually, or Master of Law. And so going into finance was somewhat predictable given I had an undergrad degree in finance, but it was also the ability to be flexible and also to take the chances when you're given. And so I always say that, you know, if if I hadn't, you know, taken the risk, I probably wouldn't have gone around the world and doing different things. And again, opening up your eyes to different sectors or different countries and the different ways of management. So the best and most interesting that I could say is, you know, be adventurous, be open-minded about what you do. And there's no specific lessons that I've learned besides, you know, just be as open as you can. That comes to the main subject of the day, RHL Ventures. I've read a Bloomberg article uh, regarding how it is being set up. It's actually set up behind pretty interesting family businesses who decided to invest into this fund. So before I, we get to the background of yourself and your co-founder, I want to ask you then, can you describe the mission and the vision of RHL Ventures then? Well, RHL was set up as, again, to your point, to invest some of the family capital into a sector which is growing in a region that we had high conviction on. A lot of the families behind us are Southeast Asian, home-based, homegrown, and home-succeeded. But at the same time, we've seen a lot of families branching out to not just outside Southeast Asia. Again, the thesis was to come back to Southeast Asia to play on a region that was growing phenomenally and to invest in you know younger entrepreneurs who are willing to take risks. Um, in a lot of ways, this was our way of giving back to the society or the countries that, you know, have helped us be who we are. So we're a little bit more, you know, I wouldn't say we're social capitalists, but I'd say that, you know, there is a social mission behind it to grow and groom the next set of entrepreneurs who are willing to take risks to disrupt the existing ways of doing business. I think, you know, what has perspired in the last 30 years or the 60 years ago, you know, is very different from, you know, how you will succeed in the next 30 or 60 years. So when we look at entrepreneurs, we're looking at guys who are hungry, who's willing to change, who's willing to bring all the, you know, Southeast Asia countries forward by doing good. Only by doing good will we be making money. And that's how we really believe in uh, some of the entrepreneurs behind this. So what's the backstory behind the setup of the venture firm itself? I know I understand that there's family businesses involved and I think the people who are managing the fund now all came from families who have very strong businesses who may actually end up succeeding their own family business but instead coming out to set up this venture firm. We get the fact that, you know, it's much easier going back to the family businesses and 
you know, succeeding it. But for us, we were, you know, like a lot of people coming back, we wanted to do our own things, we wanted to prove that, you know, having 10 years abroad and working in financial institutions that were world-class institutions by itself, we would be able to succeed in building up a brand that was uniquely Southeast Asia. So, you know, when people ask why set this up, we said, why not? You know, there's Fidelity, there's Tiro Prize, there's Goldman Sachs, you know, these are big brands that people know. We said, why not set up a Southeast Asian brand that is really unique to Southeast Asia? Again, homegrown, home base, right? And so, you know, we sat down one day and this was, you know, my co-founder and I, Hamza, we're in Hong Kong. And he said he wanted to come back to Malaysia. And I said, okay, cool. You know, how about this? you know, thing that we said we were going to do as kids and we were 15 years old at the time and we were joking about the fact that we would start a business eventually or in the in the very, very far future. So that took place. It wasn't on a piece of paper. It was in a Japanese restaurant. We were negotiating terms and he said, okay, we'll come back, you know, we'll get a couple of guys. And that was really how it started. So it was a very funny story that ML been talking about this when we were 15 years old and decided that we wanted to start this a long time ago. Can you describe the backgrounds of both Raja Hamza Abedin, your co-founder and yourself, and why did the skill sets that you both have are complementary in starting this venture firm there? Well, Hamza comes from a financial background as well. So, you know, after his school in the UK, uh, he went to work for Goldman Sachs and then Guapo, which is a family office. The way he was trained was, you know, very strong in, you know, financial analytics. And as you know, as we've mentioned, had prior to this, my background has again been, you know, a very strong financial investment manager. And that was really it. So it was, you know, we both had skill sets in investing and it made sense for us to be investing. And we've had some family capital behind us. And that was really it. Does RHL Ventures have an investment thesis? Yeah, we've mentioned about Southeast Asia as being a growth engine of the world. You see, again, you know, somewhere like Malaysia, which has, you know, people talk about it being tarnished by politics, you know, instability in the region. Malaysia itself is at 5.9% GDP growth. You know, we're not that far away from somewhere like China, but we're a much smaller scale. And so I understand that. There are opportunities in somewhere like Malaysia that you can leverage off. Again, the thesis for us is, you know, the region is great. There's big growth opportunities. There are inefficiencies in the markets which needs to be fixed. When you look at Grab, for example, it's fixing a very core and pain point in the region, in the region, which is transportation and getting, you know, consistent quality service in the transportation sectors because you know what, we don't have great facilities in terms of infrastructure. I'd say actually, to be fair, our infrastructure is better than the US. So if you look at, you know, our subway system in Bangkok or in Singapore, I mean, Singapore is a bit different, but in Bangkok, the infrastructure for the BTS, you know, is way better than somewhere in New York. You know, I'm happy to say that. The problem is it hasn't caught up with the population growth. So there's not enough of infrastructure at this point to also cater for the younger population. So, you know, guys like Grab have and has, you know, perform services that are useful for the current market. And so when we look at Southeast Asia, it's not just the, the growth, the young population, but also at the same time, there has been, you know, a lot of opportunities that's easy to be exploited in, in this part of the world. And for us, you know, it was, you know, we wanted to play in that specific areas where it's low hanging fruit, as people would put it. And it's just, just bringing, you know, professionalism and institutionalization to some of the things in this part of the world bring it to the 21st century. I asked it to every venture capitalist who come on my show. What's a typical day like? For example, new sourcing, farming or something else? 
I don't think I'm suited for farming. So I'm a skinny, scrawny little girl. So the farming is probably out of my league at this point. Well, no, it's very different. So, you know, one day I'm speaking to you, for example, on a radio show. One day we're doing deal sourcing and, you know, it's going, it's, you know, speaking to entrepreneurs, you know, some of them are very young, some of them are much older. Again, it's been, you know, people say, oh, you know, all these guys must be young guys. And I say it's not necessarily. So there's a lot of guys, you know, 40, 50 years old that have came out to start their businesses because they've seen the inefficiencies in the markets and they have, you know, more experiences than, you know, the younger guys. So it's speaking to different entrepreneurs, for example. One day there'll be, one day I'll be speaking to politicians, some ministers and deciding, you know, how best to move forward in the venture capital space and what do we need to do to encourage entrepreneurs to come back, number one. Number two, you know, how do we, you know, encourage an ecosystem that is is growing and that needs help to grow, you know, or, you know, how do we put a proper infrastructure in the ecosystem? So when I say that, I, I mean, you know, how do we put accountants, lawyers, entrepreneurs, ministers all in one room and deciding how to move forward as an ecosystem. Another day would be, you know, us going down and doing field work. Um, when I say field work, it's not farming. It means going into the factories and deciding, you know, oh, well, not deciding, but, you know, observing how the snacks are packed, you know, and a lot of times we get a lot of different goods to try. So it's actually quite interesting. You know, one day we've got headphones from Ronaldo. Um, so Ronaldo sent us, you know, headsets to try out. And that was one of the new things that he was launching as a personal entrepreneur. Or, you know, snacks, you know, we get it shipped in from, you know, some people ship it for us from Taiwan. Or, you know, I get exercise, one of those exercise trainers. And so for us, we're trying, constantly trying new things. So every day is very different, but I wouldn't say that we'll be farming, I think. But there, there are a lot of things that we do. So I just have to qualify when I mean farming means uh, metaphorically is actually managing your portfolio. So oh, right, okay, okay. yeah, so like talking about hiring of people, talking about, you know, getting the grind done, like for example, talking to lawyers, accountants and everything else. So I want to drive deeper into your investment thesis. So uh, what are the industry verticals that RHL Ventures typically invest in? We look at healthcare a lot. Again, the thesis is with the growing population, there will be more emphasis on healthcare. I'll give you an example, right? I've moved back from Hong Kong and the US, and I find the healthcare insurance here extremely lacking. So in the US and Hong Kong, what I can do is I can buy a medical insurance and, you know, get it covered for, you know, five, six thousand dollars a year and everything is covered. So, you know, it goes from physiotherapist to your eye doctor to just normal GP in somewhere like Malaysia or Southeast Asia as a whole, ex-Singapore, of course, you're not able to get the medical insurance. When I asked why this is the case, I was told that medical insurance are typically loss-making products. So essentially what happens then is people don't sell it in places like Southeast Asia because the life insurance that they sell will not be able or not sufficient in terms of profits, it's not sufficient to cover the medical insurance. So for us, it's then investing in, you know, the basic needs, right? So we've invested in health metrics, for example, to provide that solution. Health insurance or healthcare benefits are typically provided by corporates. And we have health metrics now taking up the slack of the health insurance space because we have seen people struggling to meet normal healthcare needs. And so essentially, Health Metrics is a SaaS provider or an insurance provider or insurance, I wouldn't say provider, I'd say the better word would be solution for these corporates that typically 
aren't able to manage day-to-day -day healthcare needs of their corporates. So for health metrics, for example, there's 120,000 users um, in the space of uh, two and a half years. So you do see that growth in this part of the world. And again, it's very basic needs, right? So we've done that. We've also looked at healthy snacks. When I came back, first off, I had diary for a whole month. And the reason why was the food in Malaysia was extremely oily and extremely rich. For someone who's lived in, in Hong Kong for seven years, who had very plain Cantonese food, Malaysia was a very tough place for me to adapt in terms of the food wise. For me, who is extremely health conscious, we saw a segment that we could tap on, which was the healthy snacks. When we invested in signature markets, we saw our growth going from 1 million to 6 million to 14 million in the span of two and a half years. So there is a group of healthier or more health conscious individuals who are looking for alternatives in this space. So, you know, healthy, again, the team is like, how do we become more health conscious or healthier people as we grow forward. And then the other verticals that we're looking at are, you know, the fintech space. There's a lot of, it's a bit rich right now because there's a man, the amount of players that came into the markets. But the other thing that we've started looking at is, you know, the cashless system. You do see that people are being more cash, which again is quite interesting. A lot of people actually don't have credit cards in, in Southeast Asia, but we've moved and we've jumped on from the credit cards or we've just bypassed credit cards to just paying on your phone. And again, you know, that's something that we're looking at a little bit more closer. We're doing a lot more work to see who's going to emerge as the, you know, the, the biggest winner. And it's just not an e-market, oh, sorry, an e-wallet player, right? This is, you know, changing the financial systems and eliminating some of the banks, you know, do we really need the bigger banks doing retail investments or sorry, retail um, distribution? When I'm back here, you know, I, I, I try, I use the local banks and they're all horrible. So my ATM downstairs of my office is spoiled every two days out of the week. So you do see a lot of pinpoints in the market that need upgrading and technology or, you know, the millennials, the millennials who have came back have introduced technologies that is bypassing some of the older technologies that, you know, people have taken for granted for. So what's the typical ticket size that you will invest in a startup? And also what are the traits in startups and founders that you seek out for when you invest in them? We do, oh, we're looking to do between one to five million dollar tickets. Having said that, we've got the ability to do more if it's an interesting space that we're looking at. And again, that is going to be done with friends and family. Uh, on ourselves, we can do one to five million. And what's the traits? I said, you know, the, the traits of the founders are you're hungry, you're looking to change, you're open minded about, you know, implementing different strategies. The one thing I've seen in this part of the world, you have to be extremely flexible and adaptable to the changes because every day is a different day right you know one day the politicians say this you know another day they might not be in power for example or you know we're in you know uncharted waters so you're able it's a it's a blank piece of paper where you're able to put anything to a piece of paper so it is up to you to to decide what your canvas looks like so for us the most important bit is flexibility the second thing is integrity for us we're looking at people who want to make a difference, uh, but also want to make a difference the right way. You do the right things, you'll make money. And that's how we see it as well. And I guess, you know, the third thing that we look at is, is this a space that has potential to grow? Or is this a space which is extremely niche? So I had someone come to me and say, you know, I'm, I want to start an app for cake deliveries. And I asked that founder, how often do you eat cakes or a whole cake? And so if you think about it, you know, where, where is your market? What, where is your go-to-market strategy? And what is, what is the size of the market? 
you know, these are the things that you have to be able to answer up front and not say, you know, eventually it will grow into the markets that I think it would be. So we're, we're looking for guys who are also, you know, you know, you're, you're a dreamer, but you're also a realist. So it, it's twofold. It's a fine line between, you know, being able to, you know, dream, but also the ability to execute. Any interesting investments from RHL Ventures so far? I mean, I don't need you to name the favorite child, but it's all the interesting ones. I mean, we have named the favorite child, right? <laughs> yeah, so health metrics, we're very bullish. Again, you know, it is a market segment that we think is extremely important. You know, it's underserving a population that hasn't been served in the, in the past or and also just doing the basic things of like providing healthcare signature markets we've been very bullish on the growth we've seen growth every month again interestingly it's all 25 to 40 year old females in not just urban locations but also kampong or like the villages as you would put it or online distribution so you know you it also shows that we've had huge presence or a huge demographic of people who understand how to use apps or in technology. And then the third thing that, you know, we've really liked is this company called GameOn. It's based in the US looking to come into Southeast Asia. Essentially, the other thing that, you know, we forgot to talk about was also sports. We love sports. I believe that sports is the right way to, again, encourage healthy living. And so GameOn is a chatbot that is targeted to the millennials and again, this is interesting in the sense that millennials like to be included or being, and the whole idea is inclusion with the players, with the clubs, um, with other fans when there is a game going on. And so, you know, the other thing that we like again is, you know, they're, they're doing AI. And when I say AI, it's surreal because there's a, a bot behind it having that conversation with you. It's a bit creepy to be honest because you don't know that you're talking to a bot, but really it's talking to a bot. And it's, you know, having that conversation about a live game. So the other one that we really like and are very bullish on is, you know, AI and machine learning at this point. I'm going to switch topics and I want to talk about what is happening in the venture capital space and some of the trends in Southeast Asia. So I'm going to ask the first question. So given the rise of things like ICOs and even alternative venture capital models that you've been seeing in the States. Do you see the traditional venture capital is here to stay or will it be evolved even from where you are now? Because you're not just thinking about venture capital, but eventually you also will go into private equity as well. I think the VC model is very different and it's been very loosely defined. On the question of ICOs, I don't think we see that to stay at this point. So we don't think, I mean, there's the two folds of it, right? So I believe there is a need for ICOs and I believe it's the right thing to do because, you know, we're going to a, a point with digitalization and there is the likelihood of use using digital currency. I'm not 100% sure if the way to raise money is through ICOs. I think it was, it's been done too easily, too quickly. And I don't think a lot of people understood what they invested in in terms of ICO. In terms of, you know, venture capital models, I do think that the model is going to stay, you know, I think we're going to move towards more or, or deeper knowledge of what we invest. Um, I don't believe in the seed strategies where you see a million and or a thousand and have one winner. And I don't believe in that. I, I believe that there's more you know, more stricter, more private equity approach into the way that we invested. There needs to be really suggested models on how you invest and how you take risk. If you look at how public markets have worked, um, we've gone from in the past, you pay 10% brokerage to now 0.25%. So you do see the markets slowly slowly, slowly being more sophisticated. I think the venture capital has seen the same as well. Again, you know, all these takes time and it's just, you know, sophistication of 
the current societies. We will get there, and I believe strongly that we are heading towards that market. So you will see people being smarter, and the ways that you know invest people invest would be less on hope and dreams versus you know putting more effort into research and this and forecasting in what the growth is in the future. So whenever we think about Southeast Asia, we think about ten to probably twelve different countries, and of course, like some markets are relatively similar. For example, Indonesia, Thailand, and maybe Philippines, and then Singapore is like the odd one out because it's a pretty advanced economy. How do you think about investing around the region? Like, is it a separate country by country, or is it if you could scale only in three countries? or maybe just skill in another three countries, for example? Well, our approach has been very different. So, you know, someone asked me or someone told me that, you know, to the typical Southeast Asia uh, venture capitalists say that, you know, Southeast Asia is one market. I find that ridiculous because it means that you don't know the markets very well. China is a very different place, right? You know, and it's very similar to China in a lot of ways. The difference between China and Southeast Asia is uh, China actually has one language. So it has a benefit uh, over Southeast Asia. But if you look at in just using, just leave Southeast Asia alone at this point. So China, Chongqing, Chongqing is very different from Harbin and Harbin is very different from Guangdong. So, you know, the ways that people have tackled China is, you know, it's a very state and city and district level. And the strategies are very different. So similarly to Southeast Asia, where you know the the differences are more contrast and it's and it's way more different. We always acknowledge that the countries are very different from a political standpoint, from a demographic standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, from a language standpoint. So when we go in, and I think this is consistent across all the countries um, that we've entered, um, we partner a local partner. So these are the families that have succeeded in the region or in, in, in its respective countries. We never say that we're an expert in a country besides Malaysia and Singapore. So we go into Thailand and we've got a, a Thai partner, for example. And his family is extremely you know, well-connected in Thailand. You know, we've got a partner in Indonesia. Again, his family is you know, long history in third, he's third generation, long, long data experience in Indonesia. You know, same as when we go into Myanmar, same as we go into Philippines, there are local partners that we partner in. And again, we're not process, uh, we can't be process, professing this ourselves as experts in every country, but we say that, you know, we're an amalgamation of very good, high quality founders and partners in the region. And therefore, we are able to succeed in this part of the world because we have such deep-rooted networks. I think given that the Southeast Asia is now growing as a region, and of course, there are different technology trends that are moving in different directions, where do you see are the most interesting pieces that venture capital is going to tackle? For example, maybe in transportation, maybe in logistics, maybe in retail. Well, there's a lot of things that you know we look at, right? So again, fintech was something that we look at. You know, our banks are extremely, extremely backwards. One example I'll give you is for me to change, or so I got locked out of my Maybank account. It's taking a month and a half for me to get that reset. The reason why is it's a company account. I need the resolution from the board of directors. I need an approval from the CEO because we're a company account or I think because the company wasn't set up for more than three years and there's other supporting documents. So in terms of, you know, fintech, we're extremely bullish in this part of the world. We think that, you know, cash, there's, there's too much cash in the system that is not accounted for. So I think the governments will start pushing digitalization to keep track of the money flow. We do believe that, again, the banks here are extremely archaic and, and it's time for them to you know, buck up and move on in terms of what you know, they've been doing. 
So fintech is one thing that we've looked at and have invested and will continue to invest in. You've pinpointed logistics. I think there's a lot of logistics players in the markets. And I wouldn't say logistics is bad. I do think that logistics system is pretty decent. It's just a ton price transparency in terms of logistics or the supply chain is not there. And so therefore, we need to improve price transparency or better price discovery of some of the services. So when, when people say e-commerce, you know, people talk about retail, right? But I talk about it as price transparency. You know, how do you find the best prices? Because instead of, you know, one giant supermarket, you know, we've got, you know, 20,000 little marts around Southeast Asia. So it's really, you know, providing, you know, the best services at the best price. I think that is the proposition that we're looking at, not just, again, from a retail standpoint or a logistics standpoint, but across the sectors, right? Across, you know, again, to the healthy snacks, you know, why, why is it that popular? Because it is providing the cheapest snacks, best quality at the fastest service. And these are the things that, you know, we find that, again, it's not sector specific, but it's, you know, extremely crucial. And again, you know, technology, the way we see it, and again, it's Facebook or Instagram, it's, it's you know, information, it's driving information to the day-to-day consumers. And so we're looking for that, you know, ability, you know, to open up the markets. Rachel, many thanks for coming on the show. And of course, uh, we would love, love to have you back again and another time to talk a lot more about what you have invested and some of the things that may be ongoing trends within the region itself. So in closing, uh, can you recommend a book, podcast, movie, or anything that has recently made an impact to your work and personal life? Well, one of my favorite books is The Most Good You Can Do. It's by Peter Singer. It's a very Machiavellian approach to altruism, but also it's something to think about, right? If, you know, if you in a world of limited resources and time, effort, and money, you know, how do you, you know, drive the most good that you can and can do to society? So it's an interesting book. It's not for the weak-hearted, I would say. But it is something interesting that, you know, we're, you know, I, I would like and encourage a lot of people to have a look at. And how do my audience find you? Company website is www.rhl.ventures. And I think you can email us at info at RHL Ventures. Or maybe even message you on LinkedIn. I'm sure there's someone that looks at LinkedIn for me. So please go ahead. You can Google me at Bernard Long. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Himalaya, and Spotify. And you can give us a five-star rating on iTunes because that will actually help us in discovery and a star on Overcast or Pocket Cast. If you have any feedback, come back to me. I also want to thank a lot of the friends out there who have listened to the show recently who actually helped us to vote out what we're going to do to celebrate our five-year anniversary. So I'm going to probably tell you that it is likely that we're going to be doing live shows. So once again, Rachel, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you again. Yep, thank you.